Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to look at psychoanalysis and parapsychology. And specifically, we're going to see if we can psychoanalyze the discipline of parapsychology. My guest is Dr. Jacob Glazer, who is an adjunct professor in the Department of Positive Human Development and Social Change at Life University, USA. He is also an online adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University, Steinhardt Campus. He is the author of Arts of Subjectivity, a new animism for the post-media era. Welcome, Jake. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here. We're going to be exploring psychoanalysis and uh, parapsychology. Uh, and in particular, uh, your approach is very unique to try and uh, psychoanalyze an entire scientific discipline. Uh, to begin with, uh, I thought it might be interesting to bring up a lecture that was given, I think, back in the 1960s by my own dissertation advisor, the philosopher Michael Scriven, who basically said parapsychology is data in search of a theory and psychoanalysis is a theory in search of data. That, that there's a, a way in which these two disciplines complement each other. You know, psychoanalysis uh, historically has been uh, attacked from, for example, philosophers of science for um, not being able to meet certain criteria that they established that um, would give it some kind of scientific status. Um, and then, for example, uh, being falsifiable, producing falsifiable um uh, explanations that can be tested in the laboratory and so on and so forth. And so I think you, you know, your, uh, beginning anecdote, I think is, uh, really powerful, um, in the sense that psychoanalysis has, uh, again, been accused of kind of reproducing itself in some ways, theoretically, um, since in part it relies on evidence taken from the clinic as opposed to evidence taken from the laboratory, from experiments, uh, things like that. Um, and I think that parapsychology, uh, to interface psychoanalysis with parapsychology, um, was what I really attempted to do in my um, article that we're discussing today. Um, I think there's a really fruitful dialogue that um, can be produced when you kind of uh, juxtapose these two. Interestingly, both are fringe disciplines in a certain sense, um, certainly from the perspective of mainstream or legendary science. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I think that psychoanalysis, it's kind of theoretical concepts. The concepts that I employ in my paper are from Lacanian psychoanalysis they're really powerful conceptual tools that allow us to think about the paranormal or about psi, about how these processes like ESP can occur. And we don't need to appeal to certain physicalist models or certain metaphors that come out of science 
um, like quantum theory. Um, while that can be appropriate in certain contexts, I think psychoanalysis offers us a much richer kind of uh, richer theory, I suppose, to, to really think about what is the paranormal. I think one fact of psychoanalysis that has always stuck with me, uh, especially uh, I noticed this in in my youth in the 60s and 70s growing up, uh, that psychoanalysis had an enormous impact culturally. It affected novels and films and even in the field of psychology, academic psychology turned away from psychoanalysis. But uh, I recall a, a study uh, of clinicians, psychological clinicians saying, what was the, the, your biggest influence? And uh, far and away, it was Freud. Freud has had an undeniable influence on 20th century thinking in, in uh, all fields, um, not just psychoanalysis, clearly, but psychology, literary studies, even philosophy, um, his kind of extant pressure on these other disciplines, I think, really speaks to something about psychoanalysis that, psychoanalysis that speaks to us as human beings. And I think Freud really tapped into that. Um, and, I, and, you know, while there's certain kind of... Um, kid gloves when it comes to dealing with psychoanalysis from a scientific perspective, I think there's also, and I touch on this in my paper a bit, there's a certain kind of subversiveness or, su or kind of um, more technically would be called like a counter-hegemonic power to psychoanalysis. And what I mean by that is that it challenges these normal ways of understanding the world. And it can be, in fact, as I articulate my paper, it can be the th really threatening in some ways. Not unlike how psi or these fringe paranormal discipline phenomena can be threatening to normal ways of being in the world. And so I think, again, you know, in that way, both psychoanalysis, it's, um, for example, it's uh, reliance on kind of libidinal, sexual, um, id-driven uh, desires or uh, more, or drives um, is certainly um, can be threatening in some ways to people having to deal with repressed memories or um, certain forms of repression that haven't been um, sublimated or brought to the fore, um, and also parapsychology is threatening. Because phenomena like ESP or psychokinesis or um, even reincarnation, the survival question that I bring up a little bit in my paper, um, these are phenomena that challenge such sacred institutions in our society like religion or, um, you know, what it, what it, what it, what would it mean for us if we did survive after death? And that has a whole kind of host of ethical consequences that I think as a society, at least, we haven't really thought thought through that. And uh, parapsychology, I think, attempts to try and start that conversation. 
I suppose, <laughs> now that I think about it, the enormous resistance to parapsychology within academia uh, could easily be thought of as, as an avoidance uh, defense mechanism from a psychoanalytic point of view. I think that's, you know, you took words right out of my mouth in a certain way, <laughs> because I think that it is so threatening uh, to the the scientific, materialist, kind of, you know, Richard Dawkins kind of understanding of human evolution or even the development of human psyche that, you know, Freud might suggest, as you do, Jeff, that, that, that mainstream academia has kind of put up this defense mechanism against parapsychology and against the paranormal. And we could ask ourselves right now, if we want to do just a quick psychoanalysis of, of, of that, you know, what, what is this kind of paranoia or why do they throw up this defense mechanism? What are they hiding? What is repressed? Right. And, and that's what as uh, a psychoanalyst, that's what I'm interested in. The kind of repressed, latent, um, forces of the unconscious that kind of hold together a certain discipline. So, for example, hold together, we could say, like the experimentalism in parapsychology. What binds those scholars and researchers together as a kind of unit or as a kind of group? And, you know, that um, in Freud's, one of Freud's articles on uh, group psychoanalysis, you know, he suggests that it requires some kind of unconscious libidinal investment uh, between each of the members in order for them to function as a group. And, you know, we could ponder or we could, you know, go down that tangent and kind of um, uh, explore what is it about that that causes them to kind of reject maybe more qualitative approaches to the paranormal or more kind of uh, ethnographic or pluralistic approaches. Well, we'll be getting into those issues, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, before we go there, uh, you mentioned that your unique approach is uh, what, what's called Lacanian psychoanalysis. And uh, we should define that and, and show how uh, it is a little different than the strict Freudian approach. Sure. So, uh, Lacan is... Uh, arguably, you know, the, the second most famous psychoanalyst when compared to Freud. Um, so he was a French scholar and a French theorist that kind of brought Freud's German ideas into France. And um, Lacan um, interfaced those ideas with structural linguistics. And um, by doing so, uh, he claims that he kind of rescued Freud's psychoanalysis from maybe being misinterpreted through the lens of biology or through, um, you know, kind of uh, a different perspective that wasn't as incisive as Lacan's own. Um, and this is that why Lacan focuses so much emphasis on language, the power of language. And he goes so far as to say um, the famous Lacanian formula that the unconscious is structured like a language. And so, um, 
Freud had different models. He had the, the early um, unconscious, pre-conscious, conscious model, and then the later more structural model with the id, the superego, and the ego. Whereas Lacan pivots to a model that looks at what in structural linguistics is called the signifier. And the signifier um, is the kind of emptied um, unit of meaning or word uh, that it can be linked into certain chains in order to produce a sentence or a context. And so for Lacan, this kind of idea that the unconscious is structured like a language, he places emphasis on the, the analogy, or I'm sorry, the um, analogy in the sentence, the like. So it's like a language. It's not strictly a language, but it's like a language. And so in my paper, I introduce his technical term, which is la langue. And that's just the language in French. But this allows Lacan to kind of articulate this kind of pool of signifiers or this kind of messy pool of words and meanings, a loose-knit association of various um, symbols uh, that um, structure the unconscious. And so we're able to produce utterances or meaning because we're able to produce contextual and meaningful sentences using those kind of symbols that are just floating around. And so that's why, for example, the famous psychoanalytic technique of free association is so powerful. Because when you just kind of articulate freely on the couch of the analyst, you're producing getting closer to the truth of the unconscious because you don't have these kind of defense mechanisms that are guarding these associations that are chaotically rolling around in this kind of um, unconscious pool. I think everybody's familiar with the idea of uh, psychoanalyzing an individual and uh, using the method of free association and the whole idea of the psychoanalytic couch. You lie down, you're in a mild altered state of consciousness, and let's just see what bubbles up. In, in your mind through a chain of associations to, to kind of go deeper uh, within. But how would you apply that to a scientific discipline like parapsychology? It's a little bit of an extrapolation, uh, for sure. And I think that um, psychoanalysis has famously proliferated itself in arenas like cultural theory or cultural studies, media studies, Again, literary studies. And so I suppose my attempt to try and produce a kind of psychoanalysis of parapsychology isn't too far afield from the, the way that psychoanalysis has been employed to look at car- cultural artifacts, perhaps, or, um, you know, the way that, um, you know, certain groups form within society. Um, but, you know, I wanted to really try, because of my interests and because of what my, my scholarship and my research program, I really wanted to try and look at parapsychology. And I thought that, you know, there is such an interesting um, juxtaposition to be, to be made between the subversive power of psychoanalysis and what I call 
the, you know, the threatening or, um, to put it into different terms, the, um, the kind of trickster quality of Psy. And that is where I make that kind of, um, connection. Um, because I think that as I kind of say in the paper, that parapsychology can be read as a science, as a science of lack. And what I, I don't mean that pejoratively. I don't mean that negatively. But the way that Psy operates, if we use trickster theory, uh, the George Hansen's famous book, Trickster and the Paranormal, kind of inaugurated, I believe, this movement in parapsychology uh, to look at the way that Psy can sometimes be reproducible in the laboratory. But if you try and use the exact same conditions uh, set up the almost exact same kind of experiment, you can't get the same result. So there, it, there's this elusiveness, we could say, about Psy, that it almost behaves like it's trying to um, evade capture or kind of thwart the kind of normal experimentalist way of looking at the paranormal. Yeah, it would seem, although uh, it's <laughs> one is one is never quite sure. There's always reason for hope, but it would seem as if the psi, yeah, the, the term that parapsychologists use as a generic umbrella term for everything they study, uh, uh, wants us to know that it exists, that it's real. But if we ever try to harness it, it it's like no way. Yes, and I think that you know there's that. Interesting, if we try and um, another uh, researcher in, in parapsychology, Kennedy, suggests that, you know, if we try and turn psi into a technology, and what he means by that is try and harness it in some ways, it again employs this kind of elusive agency that it tries to get away or tries to um, kind of thwart the way that we're trying to corner it. And so I think you know, the figure of the trickster that George Hansen kind of um, puts into play and that is articulated through, you know, different cultures around the world, um, you know, has this kind of inversion about it that, you know, it changes forms, you know, depending on the cultural context, Psy appears differently. Right. We could suggest that in our materialist kind of capitalist society, the occurrences of psi have been reduced ex to a low degree um, just because of the way society or societies put together. Whereas if we look at more of an indigenous culture, um, for example, maybe different um, a Native American tradition or different tribal cultures, Psy is going to perhaps show up more frequently, or we could say differently. Um, so, again, to go back to psychoanalytic terms, our, I would say that, you know, our social fabric represses the kind of ability for Psy to kind of show itself. And, you know, this kind of tricky nature that Psy has, again, it's we can see if we look through an anthropological lens, we can see it change forms in various ways.
Well, the trickster archetype is is fascinating. Uh, where I live in the southwest in uh, Albuquerque here, there's the figure of Coco Paley. Uh, you see it everywhere. Uh, and, and it's a trickster figure. He plays the flute. I think he's considered uh, a friendly uh, figure. But everybody has the sense, you, you know, that Coco Paley is, is, is going to be uh, playing tricks on us. Yeah, and that's the kind of um, uh, elusive, cunning, wily nature that is kind of um, a part of the quality of Psy is that, you know, there's this sense that um, sometimes tricksters trick us in order to teach us a lesson, and sometimes they trick us just to cause harm or to kind of you know, cause damage. And so you kind of never know what you're going to get. And so there's, you know, as I think there's a manner in which Psy, um, in this way kind of, you know, plays back with the kind of researchers or the kind of practitioners that are trying to investigate it. And I would even, you know, go so far to say that there's a certain kind of agency about Psy. And I think that is a lot for some people to take um, because it's it invokes a view of the world that is very foreign to our normal way of understanding the way things work. But um, you know, I I really believe that we can't be the kind of um, Western imperialists and kind of impose our will on the world and um, kind of extract as many resources or information out of it as we can um, because we're, we're going to get duped. Right? It's going to come back. There's going to be this circle back of uh, some kind of consequence that, um, you know, is, is going to be a part of um, this kind of um, selfish um, extraction of data and resources. And so, there is a, an interesting subversive nature, I think, between, again, psychoanalysis and um, the subversive power of the, the trickster um, in parapsychology. And more pointedly, the way that Psy can challenge traditional mainstream scientific models um, and the way that it's threatening to those models and how we see defense mechanisms arise because of the threat that Psy poses to normative scientific ways of uh, understanding the world. Uh, for example, in the field of psychology, it's been my experience that amongst the most uh, hostile professions to parapsychology is mainstream psychology, particularly academic mainstream psychology. Uh, and, and they do feel threatened because, uh, as I think they put it, if, if psychic phenomena are real, uh, extrasensory perception or any of, of its varieties and psychokinesis, it, it would tend to invalidate, you know, a hundred years of research that they've uh, been doing that never uh, took it into account. You're right. And I, I don't think that it necessarily invalidates all that research because I think that, you know, this, this notion of a, a science developing a theory of everything or Lacan would call it a meta-language. And so for Lacan, you know, I, I hate to use terms that we haven't defined, but for Lacan, there there is no other of the other. 
And what that means is that he just means there's no meta language. So there's, we could envision this as there's different avenues or different fields of investigation. And mainstream psychology has taken us down a certain uh, avenue of investigating psychology from a very specific perspective. But there's also different avenues to pursue. And those different avenues may or do include things like psychokinesis or ESP. And so it's, I'm not sure if it's quite right to say it invalidates the old model, but it certainly opens up a wider view of what human psychology is. And I think that wider view um, is pushed back against by certain psychologists because, again, I hate to say it, but it's threatening not only to their livelihood, to their institutions, but it's on a very personal level. And this is where psychoanalysis is helpful. It's threatening to um, religious ideas, it's threatening to social ideas, the way that we think societies should function. Um, I think Jason Giorgiani even speaks about this in uh, one of his talks with you, Jeff, is that if we admit that ESP is real, what does that say about our political system and how we should organize our political system? So there's you know, a whole lot to be thought out and a whole lot to be said about the implications that admitting these phenomena into um, existence, um, the, the implications they have for, for not only science, but also for uh, society as such. Yeah, Giorgiani points out, for example, uh, which I think is crucial uh, for the field of psychoanalysis, uh, that the implications of parapsychology are uh, that we have to redefine uh, what we mean by privacy. Exactly, exactly. And interestingly, psychoanalysis, you know, is um, astute at investigating the way that we guard our privacy and the way that we, again, put up different defense mechanisms, the way that, you know, uh, our transference operates out in the world. So who reminds us of mom and dad? And what does that mean for our relationship, our relationship to authority figures, the way that we're oedipalized, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I hadn't thought about it until right now, but there's certainly a bridge to be built between the politics of parapsychology um, and the absence of privacy in a lot of ways. And I wonder what psychoanalysis could tell us about that kind of new politics if we were to kind of, you know, think that out a little bit more. I'm sure there would be uh, a lot to be said. Uh, well, it, it strikes me that uh, in your paper, one of the, the most profound insights that you made is that um, parapsychology started out as an empirical science using the, the, the metaphysics of empirical science, which is very straightforward, that for something to be considered real, it has to be perceived through the external senses in the physical world. And uh, the findings of parapsychology point us in a very different direction, that things that are totally internal, totally first-person observations uh, become equally real, uh, maybe even more real. And uh, that seems to, to be a paradox right at the heart of parapsychology. One's inner psychic life for psychoanalysis is the most primary um, 
you know, primary source uh, to be looked at. And I think, um, again, you know, the kind of psychodynamics that are going on within an individual certainly have a connection to um, the way that not only we think about the outside world, but even energetically, the way that we are able to kind of relate to another person or able to relate to the outside world. And, uh, you know, parapsychology tells us that um, when our psychodynamic inner life is thrown off, we can have effects like, you know, psychokinesis effects or poltergeist effects where, you know, you have objects, for example, being stacked in a corner or, um, you know, banging, banging of the cupboards. Um, you know, there's... Um, uh, William Roll, I think, has, has done some work on, on how the way that the poltergeist, uh, phenomena is connected to our kind of inner psychic life. And so I, you know, I, I think more generally, I think the pit, your, the pivot to looking at the kind of rich, more introspective model of examining subjectivity is the right move um, because I think at least historically we've been more out in the world. You know, we've been trying to gather data. We've been trying to categorize. We've been trying to, you know, name different animals, you know, and, and, you know, all these, you know, we've been out in the world. And so I think a return to subjectivity or a return to taking seriously the kind of, data or the kind of phenomena that we can uh, divine from our own kind of introspection, I think is, um, you know, a good move for parapsychology. I'm reminded of uh, a, a psychoanalyst who is also a parapsychologist, Dr. Jewel Eisenbud, uh, who wrote a book, Parapsychology and the Unconscious. And uh, he came up with a fascinating insight, especially for someone like me, because I've, I've been looking at training psychic abilities and applying psychic abilities. And Eisenbud's insight was, don't do that. <laughs> it was, he was saying that the, pr the problem is if people have unconscious, self-destructive impulses uh, or complexes that their psychic abilities will end up uh, functioning in the service of those self-destructive complexes. And he, he gave examples from his own clinical practice of how people with psychic abilities got themselves into a lot of trouble. Uh, I think if I look at humanity as a whole, Jake, it, it strikes me there's a lot of self-destruction, obviously uh, implicit in human behavior right now. You, uh, you know, we're living through all kinds of ecological crises. At, at the moment uh, of our own creation. So, uh, it, it does make me think that perhaps parapsychology uh, is being saved uh, by the trickster from, its, uh, from making things even worse. I would even maybe go a step further and say that some of these psychic blockages or, you know, we could say traumas that we haven't been able to deal with, not only collectively, but on an individual basis, they block Psy, right? Or they, or like your, your, um, story of training, uh, participants, uh, to, to actually do Psy tasks can actually backfire because they haven't resolved these various, um, traumas. And so, 
I think that, um, you know, it's a blessing, I suppose, in one way that, you know, we don't have the kind of prevalence uh, that, of Psy that could poss- that could perhaps be possible. But at the same time, you know, I think this is where the conversation between parapsychology and psychoanalysis uh, can be really helpful. Because I think that if we, you know, continue it, we can look at healing these kind of more psychological, clinical or psychotherapeutic issues that, you know, everybody has, right? And um, we can look at healing those, and we can, we can see how that process of healing unlocks or doesn't unlock certain psychic abilities. Um, you know, to put it simply, once you get all of the garbage out of the way, you know, you can see the light of day. And so, you know, I wonder once we do that work, um, on an individual and a collective level, you know, we might be able to kind of coax Psy out uh, to play. I would agree with you. It seems to me that uh, if you look at the uh, folklore coming out of spiritual traditions, that when people have spiritual breakthroughs, they're very often accompanied by uh, synchronicities and other forms of uh, paranormal manifestations. Uh, and the, the spiritual traditions often say, don't Pay too much attention to it, but just acknowledge it's a sign you're on the right path. There's a tendency, I think, for the mind to cling to meaning and to cling to these, what we see as special occurrences. And I think, you know, even from a more mindfulness or meditation perspective, I think just acknowledging the sign and being able to let it go and even being thankful for the, the, the synchronicity and then moving on, I think, is uh, really a sign of, of health uh, and, and psychic fortitude. Um, but yeah, no, I think that, um, I think that, you know, once we, again, I think, and the reason I bring this up is because I do a lot of uh, theory work uh, on not just the individual psychological level, but more social and cultural level. And I think that we have to look socially and culturally um, at ways we can kind of restructure or heal our society um, from kind of the the very narrow and I would even say unethical materialist scientific lens that has been foisted on us over the last couple centuries. Now, to go back to the um, notion of the trickster, uh, I, I often puzzle over it because uh, you, you can find many examples where it seems the trickster is at, at play. Uh, examples where it seems there's a very promising experimental protocol in parapsychology. It gives very good initial results, but by the time you have a dozen scholars attempting to replicate it, the results, while still significant, become weak, and the, and the possibility of applying it seems to vanish. But there are some exceptions to that. Uh, People I've interviewed, Russell Targ, and uh, another one is Stephen Schwartz or Stefan Schwartz. Uh, these are people I've done many interviews with them, and throughout their careers, they've been successful in uh, producing psi in the experimental sense and also in applying it. And it 
It seems to me we could learn a lot from studying more carefully the really successful experimenters in, in the field because there's something about them that seems to move them beyond the trickster stage. Yeah, and I think we have to ask ourselves why these legitimate, um, reputable and replicatable experiments aren't being taken more seriously by mainstream psychology. And not only that, why, you know, aren't, aren't we hearing about them, uh, through different, um, academic organs like journals or newsletters, uh, things like that. And so I, I think that's where this kind of institutional, guardedness comes into play that you know yes these studies and experiments have lived up to certain scientific standards but nonetheless we're still going to ostracize them or we're still going to ignore them and so what does that say about you know mainstream psychology um, not only that what does that say about <laughs> belief as such in so far as that simply by the sheer fact that they do not fit into our normal way of understanding the world, we're going to not admit them. We're going to render them as anomalous. And that's what I think, again, why I think parapsychology is in such an inter interesting place as a discipline. Um, because it's fringe, which some people think that that's negative uh, or bad, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be fringe. And it's kind of you have more maneuverability in some ways. And because it's more fringe, it's also, I argue in my paper, has a certain kind of subversive quality to it. And that I think uh, Thomas Kuhn would say that it's a kind of anomaly in the normal paradigm. So the normal scientific paradigm that we've been operating under, parapsychology has a chance to be that anomaly and to cause perhaps a new scientific revolution and what that would do would kind of overthrow this kind of drab materialist experimentalist understanding of not only the world and psychology but it would bring in a whole new way of conceptually not only conceptually thinking about the world through metaphors like esp pk um, so on and so forth, but actually in engaging the world in a very different way. And, you know, I've suggested here and in other interviews different ways that we as researchers uh, or parapsychologists, we can methodologically kind of shake things up and we can look at uh, these phenomena from more of a phenomenal phenomenological lens or more of an autoethnographic lens more of an anthropological lens. And so we don't have to kind of fit into uh, what it means to be, you know, mainstream science. Um, and in fact, you know, again, parapsychology is in that unique position that it gets to kind of challenge that um, kind of ordinary framework that we've been relying on uh, for so, so, so many centuries. Well, you write um, in your book, uh, The Arts of Subjectivity, about a new animism. Uh, and I'm under the impression that from the 
point of view of uh, the you know, guardians of materialistic uh, academic thinking, uh, th their fear is that a new animism would become uh, uh, the what I think they call the rising tide of superstition. <laughs> That, that, that there needs to be a, uh, a methodology that can distinguish between a uh, ontologically viable animism and uh, the, the whole realm of superstition. That fear is certainly there. And we challenging enlightenment values that have been handed down to us um, is, again, this kind of um, uh, threat. That, that certain individuals and institutions see. And that's why, you know, I think the trickster, again, to bring the trickster in here, the trickster has no love of instrumental rationality. In fact, it's much more of an animal, uh, sensual creature that doesn't really care about upholding reason as, you know, the hu you know, what sets the human apart from other animals. Uh, is a, I think, an Aristotelian, uh, question, uh, that we have reason or that we can be rational. Well, the trickster doesn't see it that way. <laughs> In fact, the trickster knocks down human exceptionalism. And what I mean by that is that the privileging of the human as a kind of special site or object that, um, is unique and kind of special. What the trickster does is it not only does away with that, but again, to return to the kind of uh, animistic view of the world, it sets the human as no, not no different than any other being in the sense of, um, you know, no privileged place. Of course, there's differences among beings, but it doesn't afford the human a special place. And so, you know, I think people see a return to animism is maybe a step backwards, right? Because we're going back to more of a kind of tribal, uh, not, you know, not nature, earth, um, these different tropes that are more tied down to um, the sensual qualities of the body or of the, the earth, the planet. Um, whereas, you know, the other side, you know, wants to kind of push along technological progression, you know, instrumental rationality, kind of globalization, this kind of manifest destiny of Western civilization. Um, and so there's a threat in the superstition uh, that animism kind of injects into where we're at, Um uh, with our, our current society. But I think that, um, I don't think it's an either or. And so I don't, you know, I don't think it's, it's, you can have, you can only have animism. You can't have kind of enlightenment, Western civilization. I think you can, there's a way to marry the two. And so I think, um, you know, part of me thinking about, uh, these concepts and ideas, you know, part of my work in this article, um, was to, bring the kind of, you know, animistic we could suggest, or even some, you know, scientists or philosophers would accuse psychoanalysis of being superstitious in a lot of ways. And so there's that spirit or ethos that psychoanalysis has 
um, with animism in certain ways and bringing so psychoanalysis into dialogue with the more traditional scientific parapsychology. And so I think that, um, there's a lot more to be said on the topic. Um, and you know, I've, hope I've started, um, you know, a kind of follow up to this first, this first article. And, you know, I'm hoping to kind of not only build on a couple of the ideas we've talked about in terms of the trickster, um, in terms of the unconscious and the way that, um, even privacy functions in a certain politics of parapsychology. Um, so I'm hoping to continue the conversation because I think, you know, Jeff, there's, a lot to be a lot more to be said on the topic i think what i hear you saying jake is that the methods that have developed uh, under the umbrella of psychoanalysis and i think i would add jungian analysis uh, jungian depth psychology as as well to the list offer us a uh, a tool for uh, entering into an animistic worldview uh, without falling into superstition that's a good way to put it, because I the the theory and the concepts that psychoanalysis offers us kind of can structure that passing. It gives us the kind of anchor or kind of a, a mooring by which we can still have a kind of um, theoretical animistic sense um, while not having to leave you know the benefits of like modern medicine behind. Well, Jacob Glazer, once again, this has been a fruitful, uh, enlightening, uh, elevating, uh, and informative discussion. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. It was great to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I look forward to future discussions as well. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.